Hello and welcome to this special JustCast series about the upcoming Reclosure 2021 conference. We're going to have a brief conversation with our speakers, asking them some questions about their life and job to get to know them better. There are very few books in our community that are considered works of literature. Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, or SICP, by Harold Wilson and Gerald J. Sassman, is one of the few. But the author line also mentions with Julie Sussman. And we always wonder what that means and who Julie is. Today, we finally have the opportunity to chat with Julie to get to know her better. Julie, it's our great pleasure. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Okay, uh, I'll introduce Julie in more detail. I'm gonna lay out what we know about her and then we'll ask Julie to fill in the pieces. Uh, so Julie, you, you went to MIT. You then went into programming professionally for 18 years. Somewhere during that time, you got involved with this book, The Wizard Book, Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. This experience led to you leaving professional software development and along that next journey, writing two instructor's manuals, editing other computer science textbooks and technical works. Uh, you also wrote your own book, which I was reading this morning, called I Can Read That, about how to read Chinese characters uh, for travelers and newbies like me. Uh, so there's a lot here. We'll dig into everything. I want to start by asking you, uh, what did you study at MIT? How did this journey begin? Well, I majored in math, which was sort of the obvious thing in those days, if you liked math in high school. And um, some people would ask, why didn't you major in computer science? but I won't wait for you to ask that because there was no such thing. Mm -hmm. There were no computer science majors at that time. There were some programming classes and I took them. There was mm -hmm. a beginning class in Fortran, which I took in my first year, second semester of my first year. And that was not, how should I say, a full-size class. Like there were um, full credit classes like calculus and physics and you know French and stuff. And this was just a half size course for, so freshmen could try different things um, and get a taste of things. So I it was supposed to not take very much time, but I was so hooked on it and it was so hard to do it for the first time that mm -hmm. I spent about half of my time on that one class. So you can see I really loved that. Mm -hmm. And then there were two other classes. I don't even know if there were more than two other classes at MIT at that time that you could have called computer related. One was for the, I'll use the numbers in case there's some old timers out there from MIT, 6251, which was systems programming. And you learned about compilers and assemblers and all that low level stuff and programmed in I think assembly language. I don't remember, Jerry would remember. And 6231, which was the intellectual ancestor of SICP. In fact, while working on, while Jerry was working on and Hal were working on SICP, I often pulled out my homework and quizzes and things from that class to give them ideas. But anyway, they started with functional only. They didn't give you any imperative constructs. Then you got imperative constructs. It had environment diagrams. If you know SICP, this should sound familiar. It wasn't mm -hmm. the same class by any means, but I took those um, classes and related things, you know, like a... a a class that would have basic logic and finite state automata, just you learn those kinds of related things. And of course, many other courses, but that was, that was the related stuff. Um, so, so who, who was the, who were these computer science courses being offered kind of at or for in this era? There's no computer science major, but there are technical fields. And I'm sure in the air is this idea that there's this new computational thing that's out. 
Um, so, so what, what sort of mind was being pulled into this? Yours? I don't know. I don't know. I assume there were people from every place taking the class. I don't know how people knew about it or decided to take it, any Mm -hmm. of these classes. But certainly if you think about, I was more aware of that afterwards when I was working, you know, who were these people? And I remember very clearly, I, I, it was in my second job. So I'd been working for well over three years, maybe six years, maybe, I don't know. And when we had our first computer science major hired into our group, and it was like, what? She majored in computer science. Whoa, who knew that was even possible? You know, people were from everywhere. They were from, there were a lot from math because it's that kind of thinking, you know, it's about Mm -hmm. clear logical thinking. So people from math are naturally drawn to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Engineers. So we had one of the people I got to know early and worked with a lot, became a lifelong friend, came from material science. People came from every field because it was all new stuff being created. Mm -hmm. So they came from everywhere. So uh, one of your co-authors on the SICP book is Gerald Sussman. Uh, I believe you met at MIT. So tell us, tell us that story. How did you meet Jerry? Uh, how yes, did you meet we Jerry? Were, we were both students there. Um, we met when I was in my first year and Jerry was in his third year. We were fixed up twice. That means uh, once the first time a mutual friend introduced us at the very start of my first semester at MIT. And the second time was early in my second semester when another friend got us together on a date. So I guess we were slow learners. Yes, that's right. That's right. But um, after that, we were together forever. All right. Um, I'll pass it over to Renzo for the next, uh, the next block. So, Julie, you worked many years as a professional programmer. Uh, can you tell us about that experience and what, what type of gr- programming, what field? Okay. So my first job out of college was at the Transportation System Center right near MIT in Cambridge. It's um, a part of the U.S. government. And so they did various kinds of work related to transportation for other agencies, transportation agencies in the government. And I got very lucky to get hooked up with a guy who was doing um work on air air traffic simulation. And he got a contract to do an information retrieval system for the flow control center at the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. And in those days, you know, this is before everyone everyone had computers and could do things with computers. These guys in the flow control center would call every morning, they would call them 14 major airports and discuss what flights were expected when. And then they would look at how those things might be affected by bad weather. Let's say a flight from New York would be delayed en route to Los Angeles because of bad weather over Chicago or something. And they would look at all that and what traffic was going where and kind of make a plan to try to hold flights on the ground or something so they wouldn't be stuck in holding patterns in the air and big delays. So they tried to control the large scale flow. And this was all done by hand. So we made them an information retrieval system so they could find out, for example, what heavy jets are arriving in San Francisco from New York and Boston in the, uh, this morning by doing a very simple free-form query. So that was a really great project. I learned a lot and it turned out, although it was supposed to be a temporary thing that would lead to a contract to write the real system, I believe it was in use for decades because contracts to write real systems are pretty hard to actually make happen. <laughs> then 
My second job, after I left there, I went to BBN, both Veronic and Newman. You guys are nodding your heads, I see, as I say this. But a lot yes, of people yes. look at me blankly. No, no, it's, uh, it's, um, it's a name that is coming over and over if you like read uh, artificial intelligence literature, for example. Uh, a lot of research went uh, in that place. Um, That's I true. think yeah, they, they, they were pioneers, for example, of um, artificial intelligence, uh, expert systems, I think. If I remember correctly, uh, I think a lot in um, language understanding, natural language understanding. I think oh, yeah, they did a lot well. of the pioneering mm-hmm. work. But I wasn't in the AI group there. Um, what they're what they're really important for. I mean, I'm not saying that's not important. Is a little thing called the ARPANET, which led to the internet. I mean, the ARPANET happened at BBN. So, you know, the fact that we're talking today all comes out of that work at BBN. Um, so I was hired into the um, one of the systems groups, systems programming groups, and it's BDN does doesn't really do products. They later tried some products. It's really research and development. It sort of was considered like a halfway house between industry and academia. You had interesting work, like you would have in academia, um, but maybe the pay was in between academia and industry. So you gave up maybe some possible um, greater pay for the atmosphere, which was great. Great people, great atmosphere. So I worked there for 15 years. I didn't have any specialty. I didn't have a field. I just liked learning and doing new interesting things. So whatever project was available and could use someone, if I thought it sounded like a good project, I would say, sure, I'll do that. But the first thing they gave me to do when I got there, this is, the, this is actually the one that's the most fun to talk about. It's the only one I ever talked to lay people, non-programmers about, because it's the only one where they would have any clue what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So what I tell them is that I was email guru of the world. What does that mean? Yes, what does that mean? First of all, the word email didn't exist back then. It came into existence oh, maybe eight or 10 years after what we were doing at BBN. But what is email? It's communicating by computer between computers. Mm-hmm. And since they had the early computers on a network there, one weekend, Ray Tomlinson, not as a project, just as a thing to do, thought, you know, I could send a message between our two computers that are on the ARPANET. Mm-hmm. And so he worked out how to do that and wrote a bunch of words and programs. We called it sending messages. We didn't call it email. Mm-hmm. And so you had a program called send message for composing your message, a program that ran in the background that found the queued up messages and delivered them over the network and at the other end accepted them and put them into your mailbox. And then a program for reading your messages. Mm-hmm. And they needed someone to take that over from Ray so he could get back to like real work, you know, Harry systems programming and system architecture and real projects. And it was also a way for me to learn the system. So they gave me a job to do from which I could learn the system, the whichever operating system that was, I think it was 10X at that time. And also it was a, a necessary piece of work. So I had this constituency that was all, I'll call them email users, on the whole network in the whole world of which there was a small printed directory. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could know everybody. And if I, did something good. I heard about it. People were really nice. And they, you know, I come into my office and say, wow, great. 
or if I did something wrong, I heard about it right away because people depended on this. So it was a great project. I did that. Yeah, and, and they had a mechanism to message you, you know, their pleasure or displeasure. Yeah, they could. <laughs> over the network immediately. That's true. They could over the network. <laughs> or they could, a lot of them were in the building, could walk into my office. But yeah, you're right. They were in other places. So that's the only one I, I tell the general public about. But I, um, I was on a large variety of projects over the 15 years, often for as short as a year, maybe for a few years. So, um, uh, I worked on a compiler. I worked on the lowest level thing I ever worked on was a um, tape driver to run a big tape deck, a tape mm. machine. Mm-hmm. They had tapes. Mm. Um, a um, packet radio network. Um, I was involved in one of those natural language systems, but I was in the middle end. So I wasn't doing the understanding part. I was kind of doing internal representation. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a... Um, some VLSI design tools, very large scale integrated circuits and design tools. A lot of people were working on that at that time. And um, this is also very quaint, um, a thing called Intel Post, which is International Electronic Postal System or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the idea was in those days, some businesses had faxes, but most didn't. It wasn't something everybody had. And there wasn't, um, the public didn't have computers and the public didn't have email yet. So the idea was if things had to be faxed, like a legal document with a signature, then you could go to your post office and they would scan it on a special scanner that would transmit it to another another post office that was in that system Mm -hmm. that could print it and deliver it as regular mail. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, it's very quaint now to think of that, but that was quite a, an interesting project. Well, I mean, in a way it's quaint, but it's also part of the story of how do you bootstrap the infrastructure of the yeah. world up onto these new networks that we've discovered. Yeah. And, you know, you're, you're, this, this origin story of email is fascinating because it's all through science, we have this history of some ideas in the air and all, you know, and multiple people discover the same thing at the same time. And mm-hmm. with computing, there is a, an actual you know, machine in the building, which makes this idea possible. And it makes it just this thing you can do in an afternoon and play with, but without thinking about where everything's going to go and, and this enormous yeah. uh, you know, road it leads down. So, so lifting pieces of the mail service yeah. up into the network, uh, I mean, we, we know where that's led. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a profound yet uh, small thing at the same time. And th- there's so much of that on the table left mm-hmm. for this, this field. Well, Intel Post was a different thing. It never really went anywhere. And there were there was a lot of politics. Oh my god! Interesting. Um, so, with all this like um, interesting jobs, um, why at some point you decided to leave programming, and what was the next thing you did? Well, that's something I actually had to think a lot about because it was hard to sort myself out even at the time. So, what happened was actually. That story starts with SICP. So now we're going to talk about structure interpretation of computer programs a little bit and then continue more with that later. But I'll get just into the part that's part of this story of my leaving and what I got into next. Mm -hmm. Um, So it starts with SICP, which, by the way, I learned that some people pronounce SICP. So that's only two syllables and SICP is four syllables. So take the choice. Yes. Um, So... We went to Caltech for a year on Jerry's sabbatical. The sabbatical is a half year or a year off 
for a professor off from regular responsibilities. And typically, a professor will use that time to go elsewhere and work with a colleague on something, or maybe to start a book or finish a book. But Jerry and Hal at that point had pretty much finished SICP. You know, they had decided it was ready to publish. You know, they'd keep teaching the course, now they would have a textbook and so on. But Jerry felt done with that. He had no desire to think about that on his sabbatical. For his sabbatical, he wanted to learn to do astrophysics research, which is why we went to Caltech. That was the premier place for that. And by the way, I got my fantasy too. I wanted a year without winter. So we both got it in the same place. But anyway, he didn't want to see or hear anything about SICP. He felt we're done. But it wasn't ready to be published yet. So what was going to happen? I had said that I just wanted to read it. I thought of myself as a reader, like on a PhD thesis, there are the supervisors and the other people who read it, other people on the committee who read it and critique it. And I just wanted to be that. I had not read it in the years they had worked on it. I hadn't read their notes and I thought it sounded very interesting. So I said, I'm going to be a reader. So I sat down and started reading it. Well, of course, there were questions and issues. Um, and I was in California now working with Hal back home in Cambridge by phone, mm -hmm. not with Jerry. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I worked on it and it turned out, which I'll, I'll go into more detail later, but right now I'm giving you the traje trajectory you asked for. Mm -hmm. It turned out to be a lot of work. It kind of took over my time. Mm -hmm. So I worked on it through that fall and into probably up to about March, um, where it got to be more work in the later parts. And later on, later that year, in 1984, when the book came out, it I just felt great holding it in my hand. It was beautiful. It was a good thing. It was a tangible thing. It's like I helped make this happen. And that just felt very good, which was very different from the programming projects, which I loved because I loved programming, but I loved the process. And as we all know, if you're doing a project like that, you don't know if it's going to pan out. Will it lead to something else or will there be the contracts over and, you know, you tried it out and it doesn't lead anywhere. It's over mm -hmm. on to the next. Mm -hmm. And this was very different. There was a tangible result. And I liked that feeling. Then. A little while later, when I was back at work at BBN, MIT hired me to organize the SICP teaching materials, the problem sets and things, and to write an instructor's manual for the book. Mm -hmm. So I did that while I was still half time at BBN. Later, I was back at BBN full time, but I was less satisfied with the work. And it took me about a year to figure out what that was about. Was it me or was it the work? It was both. The nature of the work and contracts had changed. I was getting older and changing my feelings about everything. So the upshot was that I left BBN having no idea what I was going to do next. Uh -huh. And that was actually an interesting process because as I talked to colleagues trying to sort of sort myself out, mostly they were they couldn't deal with the idea that I might not know what I was doing next. They said, you have to know what you're doing next before you leave. Yes. And yes. for most people, this is a reality because you have to support yourself or your family. If you leave your job, what if you don't find a good enough job fast enough? You might be in trouble. I had the luxury of not having to worry about that. Mm 
And the best advice I got on that was from my brother, who said who had been through many comings and goings in his life. And he said, as long as you're even part time at EDM, you're not going to have the mental energy and focus to know what you want to figure out what you want to do next. You have to leave first and figure it out second. So I took his advice. And that worked. So I didn't know what I was going to do. But another factor here was that in, in the feeling good about the book is I felt that I, I was kind of finding my destiny, if you want to call it that. My genetic inheritance was starting to win out and take mm -hmm. over in my life. My parents were both book people. My father was a publisher. My mother was a book designer, a book editor, the whole thing. And we were always, as kids, we were always surrounded by them working on books. My father sitting there editing or my mother making an index or doing something. And so it was just there. But also, we all, well, we'll get to this when we talk about skills. I'll, I'll skip that part. Um, but anyway, I had no plan. And I did have, as my brother thought, energy to think about other things. And at that point, soon after I left CBN, I started writing my own book that Sam mentioned called mm -hmm. I Can Read That, A Traveler's Introduction to Chinese Characters. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk more about that later, too, I think. So the next thing was, because I had written the manual for SICP, I got asked to write another manual for Introduction to Algorithms by Corman Leiser to Mervest. That's another rather well-known book. I oh, think. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And that was for the first edition. So I wrote that instructor's manual. And it was maybe a year after that, that MIT Press asked me to edit a computer science book. So it just happened. I didn't plan it. I didn't seek it. And that was Simply Scheme by Brian Harvey and Matt Wright. Do you know that book? I don't know that book. Everybody should know that book. Anybody who likes Scheme or Jerry's Approach or anything should know Simply Scheme. Yeah, I, ha I have this sort of bookshelf, and I, I have a very formative personal experience with the little schemer and the little lisper. Mm -hmm. And This is very different, very different. Okay, yeah, yeah, this, it's very different. Is, I came in this is, odd road. Yeah, this is a, an introductory book Brian wrote uh, teaching. He was teaching this at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And it, it was quite amazing because he had two kinds of students in the classroom. SIC prep students. They weren't quite ready for SIP, which they were definitely going to take. And this kind of got them ready and people who might never see a computer again. They're just taking it uh -huh. to, to have a different kind of class. Uh -huh. They might not know or care anything about computers before they walk into this class. And this book addresses anybody, anybody can take it. So anyway, I edited that and other books followed. The press would just ask me to edit a book or then it was word of mouth. An author would hear about me and ask me to edit a book. Uh -huh. So that's how I got into that. Wow. Yeah. No, we can probably finally say that we, we solved the mystery of the with Julie Sussman on, on the cover of the book. More in specific, what did you do on the book? What did I do on the book? So as I said, I started reading it. And the way it got written was the way I think most, probably most textbooks probably get written this way. If someone's teaching a class, they make something, a preliminary version, they start writing what we call course notes, and they give that out to the students as the beginning, and then they write more, and they give that out. And then for the next semester, they go back to the beginning and fix up what they did, because now they know how to do it better, and what they really want to say, and so on. But there's never time to get through the whole book again. 
So the first chapter is very solid. The second chapter is a little less solid. By the time you get to the fifth chapter, maybe it's less solid. This is prob probably a typical pattern. I'm just guessing. Yes. So when I in, in chapter one of SICP, as I remember, in chapter two, I doubt I even I don't even know what I found to, to critique. Maybe nothing, or just little things. Mm -hmm. Chapter three is maybe where I started finding things that were out of place, like an exercise that was in the wrong section or wrong chapter. Because as you revise the course, you might move material around, and it's pretty hard to notice that something got left in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. So I started finding some things that were misplaced. Chapter four, maybe there was more that was a little off, even some things that I thought if you explain them in a different order, it would be more compatible with the rest of the book and you'd probably be happier with it. So it was more of an editing thing. And in chapter five, I think I even found some design errors in the register machine language. Yes. So it got meteor. <laughs> So along. this is an observation about how books are written, but also about you sort of growing in over the course of this reading into this role of, okay, I, I think I have not just things I've noticed, but something to contribute here. Yeah, There's, yeah. You know, give me the reins here and let's see what can happen. Right. So I had, I helped re redesign the register machine language and some things like that. So it, it was more as the book went on. Um, then, how, so that took a lot of time. And then we got to the proofreading stage. We were, we were not typesetting it ourselves, as one does now. There was someone else setting it in Tech 80. So Hal was getting all this stuff to proofread, and there was a copy editor at MIT that was making comments on it, you know, an ambiguous sentence or some kind of error. And we're going over all that. So I'm spending hours on the phone with Hal, because Jerry's not working on this. <laughs> right next to me it's hal on the other side of the country mm -hmm. we're spending from and fedexing things back and forth he would fedex me the stuff to proofread and i i, ch I check it and i fedex it back to him it was ridiculous and it was grueling reading all these all these copies over and over again and one day i said to hal wait a minute why am i doing this i signed on to read the book i didn't sign on to do all this boring proofreading what am i doing here mm -hmm. and it's not my book right and he said, well, you know, we've been thinking you've contributed so much to making this book better. You really shouldn't just be in the acknowledgments. You should really be on the cover. You're really like a co-author. Therefore, I had to proofread. Wasn't that something clever of him? Yeah, you made him sweat for a moment. And he said, okay, I, you know, <laughs> I need came, to fix this. I, I actually, I turned that back on him when I wrote the instructor's manual. I, I wrote on it by Julie Sussman with Harold Davis and Gerald <laughs> yes. J. Sussman. And I gave it to Hal to check over. And he said, what's my name doing on here? I haven't done any work on this. I said, you're about to. <laughs> How about Jerry? Did you rope him into? Uh, so I put, I don't remember. I put that back. I put that back on him. So That's then we had to discuss how do I go on the cover? Because I can't be an equal co-author. They worked on this thing and developed all the material. I didn't develop any of the material. I didn't write any of it. They did this for years. It's their book. And we came up with with. It's the best we could come up with. It's. It's not clear what it means, but you're always free to ask, as you just did. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. what it means. So you 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 mentioned that in your family and in your past, this genetic inheritance of, of books, you've also got this skill of this many, many years in in a programming profession. So this right. is a unique combination. There are not mm -hmm. there are not many people I know that have this and have it to the level where they would even make the comment about a you know a genetic inheritance. Um so you do have the special thing going on. What's what's your understanding of your your special skill set? Can you flesh out for us what 
yours is and then also what you'd put up as the, you know, what does one need to become become a technical editor and then really flourish in that sort of uh, identity? Well, I'll let you guys generalize from what I say, if I can really only talk about myself with any real knowledge. But an interesting thing you said was my background in programming. Of course, that's crucial here. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how many editors, there are plenty of good editors out there for your English. And I Mm -hmm. learned a lot from the copy editing job that was done to SICP, Mm -hmm. where the editor doesn't understand a word of the book, but flags this sentence as being ambiguous and writes, do you mean this or do you mean that? And then you as the author look at it and you say, oh, I better fix that. I really meant this other, this thing. Or you might say, yes, technically it's syntactically ambiguous, but no one who's understanding this book could possibly interpret it that other way. So I'm just going to leave it the way it is. That's a judgment. But the point here is how many editors read the English Mm -hmm. and the mathematics and the Mm -hmm. computer programs, Mm -hmm. which could be written in um, JavaScript or Python or Lisp or pseudocode. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I read all of that, which is definitely something special I bring to that. But in terms of other skills, what I said about what I feel is sort of built in. So I don't think you can learn all of this. Some of this you can learn, some you can't. I'm just naturally sensitive to language. I, for example, if I'm talking to someone who's um, visiting from another country, I talk more slowly. I don't use many idioms. I just filter my own language. Mm-hmm. Most people I don't think can do that. So I'm very aware of language, whether it's written or spoken. So I'm good at the at seeing what's there, seeing the grammar, I'm a good speller. I naturally notice typos. Um, and I definitely got this from my parents. How do I know that? Because my siblings have it too. Mm-hmm. You know, all of them will just say, oh, you need a hyphen over there. <laughs> so, um, the other thing is that I am able to read what is on the page, not what I think the author is saying. Mm -hmm. Usually if you're just reading for meaning, it's a good thing to read what you think the author is saying, regardless of what's actually on the page. Mm -hmm. But I can go into a mode where I read literally what's on the page, not what I think is being said. And that way I can see if it is saying whether it wants, what it wants to say. Mm -hmm. I know not everyone can do that. Now I'm going to come to something that's actually more, that's very fundamental attitude. And I think it's one of the most important things I ever learned. And I learned it from Jerry, who said to me the other day that he thinks it's one of the most important things he ever learned, which is if you're reading something and you don't understand it, or it might apply to listening to a talk too, but I don't know if you're reading something and you are really having trouble with it, but it's something you maybe think you should be able to understand because of your background and what the book is, who the book is aimed at. You don't understand it. Don't assume it's you. Don't say, I can't read this book because I'm not smart enough or whatever it is you're going to say about yourself. How about stopping and saying, maybe it's not so well written. Mm -hmm. Maybe, and this is very likely, 
that assumes that you knew something that it has failed to tell you. Mm-hmm. Because imagine you're an expert on something. I'm sure you're both experts at something and you start to write a book about it. There are going to be things you forget to say because you just know that in your bones, you know it so cold that you forgot what there is to know. It's too long since you were a beginner. So you left something out and now someone's trying to learn from this book and they are stuck. They're stuck on page 17. They can't get past there because you forgot to tell them one little thing. So if you read with that attitude, you know, I think you'll get farther in your own studying and also in your own attitude about yourself. But this is key to editing too. You look for why couldn't I understand that? What's missing? Yeah, it's a miracle that's even possible to write a book, let alone a technical book, which is referencing these sort of crystalline structures in the mindscape and that you can reliably get meaning across to somebody else through what you've put down on the page. Yeah, I mean, yeah. e- even that's wild. And I've heard this nice metaphor of, you know, writing is, you could take a baseball analogy of the the author's throwing a pitch and they're trying the best they can to land it in your glove or at your bat, but they don't, they can't see you. They have this fog. And so what a crazy job to even attempt. So you, you may be trying to catch a pitch that is not that well placed. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I love what you're saying. It's, it's a book is not a judgment about who you are, where you are in your learning journey. It's just this crazy Hail Mary attempt to package up, you know, a lifetime of experience potentially and deliver it to you in this package that amazingly you can, you can soak up. So if it takes a little longer, well, be charitable towards yourself and toward the, uh, the poor author who maybe (laughs) (laughs) didn't have the, uh, didn't have an editor available to run through, you know, okay, the, the, the person does not get the chance to ask you questions. This book has to actually sail off into the unknown by itself. It doesn't get the benefit of maybe any other background or education. Um, good luck imagining how that works, as you say, when you're really deep in the subject yourself. Right. So that will come up again. We're going to talk about that some more when we talk about my Chinese character book a little later. Yes. Um, yes. We'll come back to that idea of what can you do about that? But certainly as an editor, you can do something about that. Mm-hmm. You That's can right. say, I don't follow how you got from here to there. Mm-hmm. And they might say, well, that was on page so-and-so. And then I'll say, well, refer to it or something or repeat it. Yes. You know, yes. I sure didn't get it when I got over here. Or maybe it's missing completely. So that's very important. But if you don't have that attitude, you're not going to see it. Another thing that I, I think is a very unusual ability that I have. How do I say this? I usually say I can erase my brain. What do I mean by that? Yeah. I'm going to read a book, a computer science book. Maybe I know some of the material or all of the material. Maybe I don't know it at all. But I know something because I, you know, I've been programmed for 18 years. I've been around this. You know, I know something. So how can I read it from the point of view of the actual eventual reader, the audience of this book? Take, for example, the book I mentioned before, Simply Scheme like Brian Harvey. It doesn't assume you know anything except how to read a book. Mm-hmm. That's it. How could I do that? I had to pretend I didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. In the case of that book, it wasn't so hard because since there was no background, it's not so so hard to pretend you know nothing. Just write down every word they teach you 
And every time you see a word, you say, did they teach me that? Look in your list. It's not there. No, they didn't teach me that. That's pretty easy. And in fact, when I solved the exercises, I solved them as the student. And I got to the first assignment of a recursive procedure. And I couldn't write it. What do you mean? You programmed for 18 years. You can't write a recurs simple recursive procedure. No, because I'm not being Julie. I'm being the yes. novice reader of this book. I could not write it. I wrote a little, I wrote little notes as I tried to solve it. I said, okay, I'll try this. No, that doesn't work. Let me go back through the chapter and see what, what tools they gave me. No, I can't mm -hmm. find it. Finally, I decided it wasn't in there. And it turned out that what happened was the exercise was in the wrong chapter. Again, as the book had developed, things moved around, and recursion was in the next chapter. And Brian said the way reason that wasn't noticed, they were using this book. He was assigning this problem. When you when a student is assigned homework, does that student sit down immediately right after class and do the homework? No, of course not. Yeah. Yes. So there's another lecture in between before they sit down to that problem, and by then they've seen recursion. So why do they care which page of the book it was on? They have the exercise, they know how to do it. But I was reading in order, so I mm -hmm. could see that I didn't know how to do it. So it wasn't so hard in this case, it's a little harder on a large complex book where you do bring some knowledge into it, but you have to be careful for the things they're teaching to use only what they're teaching. So I don't know how I do it. I just get myself onto some frame of mind where I don't know this stuff. I definitely write down all the vocabulary. You know, any technical term they teach me so I can keep straight. If it's a programming language, then I'll write down every feature of every feature of the language they've told me so I can check back whether I've seen that one before because I might get confused because it's sort of obvious mm -hmm. and I have to remember. But for to a large extent, I can just remember as I go along what I've learned from this book mm -hmm. and what I might know from elsewhere. Yeah, so if I put that all together, all those different things I talked about, basically when I read it, I can see whether it's clear, what's missing, what needs to be explained. I, there's a lot in that. That's it. <laughs> there's but, a lot in there. <laughs> well, so so as a as a freelance editor, you mentioned that after SICP, you had word of mouth. Your name was getting around. You were asked by MIT Press to work on different books. Um, your known now uh, for this this collection of skills that you you talked about. So you must have the ability to choose what you work on. Um, what kind of projects do excite you the most? What What's the sort of book that you would be most excited, most proud? What, what would you like to help create in the world? Um, oh, geez, I, don't like that. I don't really like the kind of question about what I would like to do because I've never had goals. Like I didn't know what I was going to do after college. I didn't even think I was going to go into programming. I didn't know what I was going to do after working at BBN. I never know what I'm going to do. I just kind of go go through life and things happen. And I've mm -hmm. had a lot of luck. Mm -hmm. So um, you mentioned the word of mouth, and that is how I get work. Either um, I don't seek work. Either MIT Press asks me to do a book. Sometimes it's a book I've done before. For example, I've now, I, I just recently finished working on the fourth edition of Introduction to Algorithms. I also worked on the second and third. Mm -hmm. Um, which started after I wrote the instructor's manual for them. They then asked me to do their second edition. And then, of course, the press asked me to do the third and the fourth. So some of them build on each other. The MIT Press, of course, knows me and might ask me to do a book. Authors hear about me from other, you know, a professor hears about me from another professor. Mm -hmm. Maybe not a professor, maybe someone else. 
um, and they might ask their publisher to ask me. A couple times an author has asked me personally and has paid me personally. Mm-hmm. So it varies. And yes, I can choose whether to work on it or not. I don't remember if I've ever said not. <laughs> um, but I guess I there's some books I enjoy more than others and some authors I enjoy working with more than others. Yes. So that's part of it. Yeah, my, my assumption was that there would be some sort of works or something about certain projects that would just make you tingle and go, okay, this this needs a good editor. This will benefit from exposition that's just not happening right now. And somewhere, okay, well, yes, this needs it, but you know, it doesn't terribly make me tingle. Okay, so so what uh what traps do you mentioned some of them, but uh what what traps do technical people fall into when they venture into this? parallel universe of writing and exposition. <laughs> Co- code has some element of communication to it and good code structure, of course, can get ideas across better, but uh, writing and human communication is a whole nother, a whole nother area. So um, what else do technical people not do well in this area? Well, I think that most of the books I've worked on have been well-organized and well-written already, maybe even professionally edited, for example, introduction to algorithms. You know, I didn't get into it till the second edition. First of all, those guys are very good. Secondly, they had a copy editor. So, um, but of course they're rewriting the material. But what, the main thing I would think is, is things like what I said before, that something isn't clear because something was left out or, or not clearly connected to the other ideas. Maybe you're not explaining at quite the right level for the reader. There was one book that was supposed to be more for non-computer science, for non-computer science people, but giving them some of the ideas about algorithms. And it was going along fine, addressing that audience. And all of a sudden, it was addressing a different audience. The author sort of lost track of who the audience was. So I had a little um, discussion with him about that. And he rewrote it the right way. So that's a trap, of course, that you may not be quite keeping in mind who you're talking to. Um, Inconsistency. You introduce something one way, but you use it a different way. And when there's code, uh, bugs in your code. Not everybody runs their code. Mm -hmm. They put it in the book. It's a nice little example. They don't bother to run it. So I'm reading it and I say, this looks like a bug. And yes, it is a bug. It's worse when they're using pseudocode because then they can't run it. Yes. In pseudocode, you do whatever you want. And you might say in English, a whole complex thing. But what they'll do in their pseudocode is they might not have clearly designed the syntax of their Mm pseudocode. So you see for X in whatever, then somewhere else you say for each X in whatever, Mm -hmm. and then you have it with a do and without a do. And so I'm carefully writing down, deducing the pseudocode from every example I see and then comparing it to the next piece of Mm pseudocode. So that's a trap, just tossing off your code and not really having a way to check, not really checking it or having a way to check it. I think that's all I can think of. In a different field, uh, we mentioned this before, but you're the author of I Can Read That, A Traveler's Introduction to Chinese Characters. Uh, In the preface, you explain that you were inspired by Jerry to write the book after returning from a trip to China. Uh, So tell us about that, the experience of writing this book. This is a a technical field in a way, but quite different from the previous books we've been discussing. It's Um, certainly teaching. It's teaching. And it's the one and only book that I personally wrote myself from scratch. 
and I think it came out very good. Um, I, I, I think it's good. So there are two things that are worth talking about here. One is um, you mentioned that I said that Jerry inspired me to write the book. So how I came to write the book is actually an interesting story and relates to some of the ideas we talked about earlier too. And also how I wrote it and avoided the trap we talked about of assuming things the reader doesn't know. And I guarantee you that it does not assume anything. It tells you anything you need to know. And I'll tell you how I'm able to guarantee that, how I did that. First of all, how did I, how did this book come about? Well, Jerry and I went to China with a group. And when I go to a country, I study the language first to whatever extent I can. This was on pretty short notice, about three months notice. And Chinese is a very foreign language. I had no background for it at all. So the teacher I went to said, you don't have time to learn a useful amount of reading. And besides, you're going to be there as a visitor for a short time. Reading is not that useful. You want to learn to speak and understand some basic stuff. So we did spoken Chinese. And my mother, by the way, who had studied Chinese, um, gave me the, agreed with that advice. So I did the spoken language. But Jerry is very, very visual oriented. And he was just fascinated by Chinese characters. So he wanted me to learn characters, too. And I said, like, I'm not doing that now. So we're in China, and he's starting to learn characters by asking people, what's this, what's that? A few years later, I was going back to China without him, with a different group. And I thought, and Jerry was saying, this time you have to learn characters. you got to learn characters. I said, fine, I'll go out and get a book. And we had really good bookstores at Cambridge at that time, and a lot of them, even including one called Asian Books. Mm -hmm. There was no book for this audience, me, a person going to China for a short time. There were books for studying Chinese. We're assuming you're starting your four or eight year study of Chinese mm -hmm. and you're going to become literate. There were books that were kind of cute, you know, with cartoons and they make little folk etymology, but that's not a character you're gonna see in China. Besides, it's too complicated for you to remember because you're a beginner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there were no books. And I made my own course of study because I was an experienced travel traveler and an experienced language student and I had been to China. So I got some flashcards and I got some inappropriate books. I got all kinds of stuff and I picked oh, yeah. out maybe 50 characters that I thought were useful to learn that I could learn in that amount of time. Mm -hmm. And when I got to China, I found out Jerry was right. It was very exciting to recognize some characters because the ones you knew just kind of jumped out at you. There's this wall and before it looked like just like art or something. And it still looks like art, but in the middle of that art, there's a word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So I thought, he's right, that was really great. And I thought someone should write that book that I wanted to buy. That would, I wouldn't have to make my own course of study out of all that knowledge and background and stuff. Someone should write that book. So I thought, I'm gonna write a proposal, a description of the book that should be written. And then I'm gonna find somebody to write it. How am I gonna find somebody to write it? went to the bookstores and first I, I kind of assured myself that if there were such a book, I probably would have found it. And I just looked at what other books there were. And I wrote down the names of the authors and the publishers and I was kind of thinking about who I might approach. And Jerry said, Jerry, by the way, is known at MIT as a great advisor. I mean, even students who aren't assigned to him go to him for advice. So he advised me. He said, no, you have to write the book. I said, I can't write this book. I don't know anything. I know these 50 characters. He said, no, no, no. You have to write the book. 
What's going to happen if you get one of those experts to write the book? If they take that idea, now it's their book. You're nobody in that world. They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to care if you like the draft and if it's the book you wanted. They're going to do their book. And also, by the way, we should note, they're going to make that same mistake. They're going to forget to tell you something because they, yes. you know, it's so deep in their bones, they've written all these books about Chinese. So he convinced me I had to do it. And as I mentioned before, after I left BBN and had no plans, I suddenly had the mental energy to attack that. Whoa. Mm -hmm. And that's when he convinced me to write it. And um, I started to write it. So how did I do that as a beginner? That was an interesting question. So what I did was I was writing it as a beginner myself. Mm -hmm. while I still knew what was hard and how I perceived it as a beginner. I drafted it as fast as I could because as I wrote, I learned, either because I looked something up or because I reviewed that same character 16 times. And then it became, it looked easy. What was hard about that character? I forgot. And if I learned more characters, it would become easier. So I had this reference book to look up additional characters in that I might want to include. And Jerry was sort of excited by Carrie saying, oh, you're going to learn so much. And I said, no, you don't understand. When I open the book to look at this character, I cover up the rest of the page so I can't see it by accident. Yes. I have to see only what I'm looking up and use that knowledge quickly. So that's what I did. I learned as little as possible <laughs> while writing the book and drafted it fast so that it would retain that beginner's perspective on what needed to be in it, what needed to be said, and what was hard or easy. Mm -hmm. And of course, I tested many drafts on wonderful volunteers. Yeah, you're surrounded by many other beginners in uh, <laughs> Well, I also consulted, character. you know, I had consultants, some of the Chinese students who were around, you know, I could mm -hmm. ask them questions. And, but I tested it on volunteers, you know, someone I knew who was, who was going on a trip to China. So she read my draft first, and uh, then she gave me feedback when she got back from the trip and so on. So that's how it was inspired by Jerry, first of all, to learn characters at all, and secondly, to be the one to write this book, which is not something I would ever have imagined doing. A beginner writing a book to teach you this. Crazy. No, but it is, it, is a, it is a project that needs uh, a good technical editing mind, because I... I, I I've had a, a kanji studying phase with uh, Japanese and the tricky thing with teaching language learning, uh, though I haven't done that really explicitly is it, because we seem to have software for this. You do have this flip of things are very, very hard, but then when you learn them, they, they just, it, it's, it's not possible to not recognize the character anymore. So you can't revert back to the state without giving yourself a good amount of time of being the beginner again. So if you don't pay close attention, you reconstruct this just so story of what it was like and it's not possible for anyone else to follow your track if you haven't taken notes. Yeah, I think um, that's a good point. And, and it sounds like you were, you know, you you were more primed than most to be careful of that along the way, uh, and then have the ability to look back and take this book to completion with those lessons intact. Another couple of not not quite on the same topic, but a couple of things about writing um, writing the book. I had to be willing, and this is something that's very hard for any writing, anything you do, if you're writing a, a paper or anything to writing, you get wedded to certain things you wrote. And someone tells you, get rid of that. You say, no, 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 I can't get rid of that. Yeah, yeah you can and you should. Okay. 
So the only example I had in my book was I was trying to come up with an index, a way to make an index of the characters. Mm-hmm. And the real, real dictionaries, you know, you have to be able to count strokes and there's all kinds of stuff you have to do, but that wouldn't be appropriate here. So I was coming up with ways of organizing that the big beginner might be able to figure out so I could have an index of them. And I, I came up with something and I thought it was probably good, but I wasn't completely sure. And I tried it on people and found out it was lousy. It didn't work. And I had to be willing to throw that away, mm-hmm. which I did. Mm-hmm. So instead, there's a list of the characters and you can just scan them. There are only 71 of them. You can scan them looking for the one you want. Yes. Yeah. Brute force search works for. So, not, you know, if we're a bigger search. book with more stuff in it, that might not have been a good solution. But in this case, I had to be willing to throw something away when, when testers told me it wasn't good. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we went through a lot of your like early days at MIT, um, your like initial job and uh, BBN, and um, like uh, the way you went into uh, technical editing um, of books and much more. Your own book as well. So, moving a little bit away from your profession, if you want, and going to into more like of a personal lifestyle, or what do you do for fun? Well. Mostly music-related things, I would guess, like folk dancing. I sing in a Bulgarian chorus, although when I say I do, I mean before the pandemic and hopefully after. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, attending classical concerts. Jerry and I used to go to a lot of concerts. Um, had friends over to play chamber music at my house. I like to read. I like love to be outdoors in good weather. You guessed that from my saying, I like to be without winter at Caltech. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite things, actually, I mean, I already told you I love language stuff. And one of my favorite things, but I don't do it very often, is studying languages. So if we go on a trip, I study the language first. It doesn't matter if it's a two-week trip. I've never been on a really long trip, so you can't ever say this is useful. I mean, we've never gone to live somewhere else. It doesn't matter if it's a one-week trip, a three-week trip. And it doesn't matter if I have only five weeks to study the language or five months. I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. One time I tried not to because I had too much work and didn't have time to take lessons. Mm-hmm. But I got up close to the trip. And I said, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. I have to go get a teacher. I have to do it. So, so how, many, uh, how many languages has this taken you through yeah. in, well, at any degree, of, at any level? Actually, uh, Sam, I prepared in case you were going to ask that question because I actually <laughs> yeah, don't know. And so I have to open I Can Read That to the About the Author page. Nice. And look up the list of languages I put in there and then the, the ones that I studied after that. Because what do you say about the author if you have no credentials? Why will anyone buy this book about Chinese characters from someone who's not, say, a Chinese teacher or whatever? So I wrote in there what languages I had studied. Mm-hmm. And people tend to misread that. They just get overwhelmed by the list of languages and they don't notice that the verb was studied. And they say, oh, you speak so many languages. You know so many languages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I said, no. I studied them. Some of them I studied for only three weeks. I don't remember a thing. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the list I have in here is that, and, and I do remember some of this, I studied French, Russian, and German in school, at different stages of school. And then for trips, I studied Chinese, Japanese, Norwegian, Swedish, Dutch, Hebrew, Serbo-Croatian, both Spanish, Bulgarian, and Hindi. Yeah. So that's up to the authorship. How about after? Anything to add to the no, list? No, no, I added... I added the last. Okay, you added the two. So I I count 13. And then I added Spanish, Bulgarian, and Hindi. Well, 13 beats my number. But 
you may know more about those languages than I know about more about these. We can compare notes someday. Yes, we will. We will. Well, you said you studied so I, them. That, I do that for fun, but I'm very lazy. I don't do it when I'm not going on a trip. So afterwards, I always say, oh, I got to continue. I might buy myself a nice book as an inspiration to continue. I got a shelf full of those. I never go back to it. I, I just, yeah, yeah. I need that, that like inspiration that I'm actually going to be there. Mm -hmm. But it, I love that. that. And the, go on. Oh, the, the, the fact that you studied them means that you are not able to speak any of them or do you know, no, speak I can't some speak of them? them. Okay. No, I don't. I don't. Um, I could. You know, I could do a little bit of French if I just revved up, you know, or a little mm -hmm. bit of something else. Some of those languages I right now wouldn't be able to say a single sentence okay. and others I can say one sentence right now or remember some facts about mm -hmm. or could do something with them if I plunged into them for a short time yeah. and reviewed. I also did um, uh, English as a foreign language, you know, leading conversation groups to help people get comfortable speaking English. Mm -hmm. um, and also one-on-one -on -one tutoring, which I also loved. Mm. Interesting. Um, and what, what is your greatest extravagance? I'm trying to understand a little more. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting question because I am not extravagant. And it made me stop and think. So I asked Jerry, what do you think my greatest extravagance is? And he said, you don't have any. So we talked about it a little, and I thought about what is an extravagance? It means you maybe spent excess money, you know, you spent money kind of out of line with what you usually spend. That's probably what you usually mean by extravagant, right? Like, and so the only thing I was able to think of, and to me, it doesn't feel like an extravagance, is when I study a language. Yeah, I, I would have said that that counts as an I, extravagance, is if you well, take the menu of things you dedicate time to, where do you kind of go overboard and, and get joy out of that? But what I mean here is, if I study a language, I don't go to a class. I get a private teacher. So some people might say that's extravagant, that's expensive. Why don't you go to a class? I don't go to a class. I get a private teacher. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's not extravagant. That's the way I'm going to learn the language better in a short time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, one could say that like an extravagance is not having any extravagance. I mean, these times well, it, could be, <laughs> <laughs> it could be one. <laughs> anyway. I don't think so. Anyway. <laughs> I don't, uh, that's the closest I could come to thinking of an extravagance. All right. Yeah. yeah. Half joking me, of course. Um, uh, what is your idea of perfect happiness? That's also a tough one because, as I said before, I don't tend to have goals, but my first reaction was a Caribbean beach. Mm -hmm. No winter Although, on a Caribbean beach. Hmm? There's no winter on a Caribbean beach. Well, it's more than that. It's just a Caribbean beach. It's got so much, that's so special. That doesn't necessarily mean I would spend my whole life there. I don't know. But when you think of just feeling good, I think of that. And okay. as I said before, no winter would be nice. Julie, this has been an amazing tour of your, your work, your life, uh, your, your editing, your career. Um, is there anything else we forgot to add that you'd like to discuss or anything else that we haven't covered? I don't think of anything right now. Thank you. Okay. Well, I think it was really fascinating to hear everything you've done in life. Thank you very much, Julie. Thank you. It was a pleasure.